we are at the beginning <clears throat> of a series on spiritual warfare. For the next four months, we will be going through the basics of spiritual warfare, and then uh, in a year and a half, we will also be going through more uh, advanced training for spiritual warfare. A week ago, uh, I taught you that the first principle of spiritual warfare is to be able to believe what God says in his word rather than our own opinion about things. If we can't get past that, we will not get anywhere with spiritual warfare. Last Wednesday night, we talked about the biography of Satan, who he was. A famous general once said, how are you so successful in your battles? And he says, I always know the power of my enemy. <clears throat> this morning, I want to talk about what are the first steps before we even get into spiritual war. What will Satan not do? Then next Wednesday night, or this coming Wednesday night, I'll be talking about angels um, and about demons and about spirits and what are the forces uh, on the other side that affect our lives. Would you please uh, pray with me one more time? Lord, I know two things this morning. I know one, that this is a very difficult message to hear. Not because of Satan, but because of our own hardness of heart and our own reluctance to hear what it has to say. But I know also that Satan will do anything he can do to distract and to interfere with this message if he has to. And so therefore, <clears throat> we would all come against him right now and focus our attention on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ where it belongs. And we ask you to open our hearts through whatever means necessary so that we could take this message very personally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the scripture is in Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, uh, you would turn to Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. No one can stay in the same place in this life. As much as we think we are staying in the same place, we're either getting better or we're getting worse. We're on the road to life or we're on the road to death and destruction. And curiously enough, you can be a Christian and still be on the road to destruction. And I'll explain how in just a little while. One of the most famous books ever written and one of the most accurate books ever written was a book of fiction by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters. It's a book that is um, a parody of a, an older demon writing to a younger demon on how to tempt a person who has just become a Christian. Um, it is, you've never read truer things in nonfiction in your life. I know, I know nonfiction, I mean, fiction, fictional truth sounds like a, uh, a uh, um, oxymoron, thank you. But it's rather a uh, paradox. It is a truth by its opposites. Um, and so therefore, um, it's, it is possible to be a Christian and still on the road to destruction. And from what this passage says, it is very possible to intellectually think yourself a Christian, but your life never have changed at all. And if our lives have not changed, been affected by Jesus Christ, then we are not Christians. Let me read this to you. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those that enter by it. 
The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Now let me give you the picture in other words. You don't have to do anything to be on the road to destruction. Many are on it. It's wide. You can't fall off of it. But you do have to exercise discipline and focus and intentionality to be on the road to life. Few are those who find it. That connotes that you have to look for it. You have to be searching for it in order to find it. And then he talks about beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous as wolves. You will know them by their fruits. There are two reasons that people leave churches. And I believe two reasons that people never come to Christ. The first reason is that no one has cared for them. You know, when Christie's saying it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O oh God. She's exactly right. We go to God sometimes because we fear, but we absolutely come near to Him because we sense His kindness. And when we are kind and loving, and when we have the character of Christ, of compassion, other people will come to God. But the second reason is what I want to talk about this morning. And that is because people are hypocrites. And they see hypocrisy in the leadership of the church. And so they leave. And that's another reason they never come to Christ, is because they see a double standard in people's lives. They see people claiming to be Christian, but not living to be Christian. Believing, but not behaving. And I want to say to you that I have been in a ministry for 22 years now, and been a minister, for, or been a believer for probably 24, 25 years, and I think I've heard every little joke justifying hypocrisy that goes around, you know. Every clever saying to make hypocrisy all right and not so bad, but it's not all right. And there is no excuse. God wants purity, and that's what he calls us to. And if we could not do that in the power of Christ, he'd never call us to it. And so therefore, this message this morning is one towards purity. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I want you to note here what they have done are the most attention-getting aspects of Christianity. They have drawn attention to themselves using the Lord's name. But look at what he says. Then I will declare to them, this is on Judgment Day, I never knew you. It's not that you were saved and lost your salvation. It was that you never came to me in the first place. You just wanted Christianity to accommodate your own sense of propriety. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those of you who have continued in your ways of sin despite your belief system. Now, you say, what's he talking about? There are spiritual battles that are never fought. Satan is lazy. He will not do anything he doesn't have to do. Satan's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. Um, he has to budget his time and his demons. He's only got a third of all the spiritual beings there are on his side. We, we still outnumber him two to one. Therefore, he has to budget his time, and he won't mess with people he doesn't have to mess with. And there are many of us he doesn't have to mess with because we are still so involved in the sin habits of the flesh. There's no spiritual battle to it. 
He can just let us go on our own way, on our own path of destruction, and never have to tempt us because we tempt ourselves. And James 1.14 says, don't think you've been tempted when you're simply following your own lust. You're, you're, follow, you're following what's in your flesh. You say, well, what are the sins of the flesh? Well, some of them are listed in Galatians chapter 5. Let me just read them to you, a few. Um, now, the deeds of the flesh, chapter 5, verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. <laughs> I hear people saying, why do you keep talking about spiritual warfare? Um, people need Satan to go bad. You're absolutely right. you know. And Satan, you only get into spiritual warfare when you begin to deny these temptations of the flesh. Then you get into spiritual warfare because then's when the, that is when the forces from the other side have to come and do their work. Okay. Uh, deeds of the flesh are, and first there is empty sexuality, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Sensuality, by the, by the way, includes anything that feels good, including eating, uh, over, you know, gluttony, so on and so forth. Not eating itself, but gluttony, anything in ex- excess. There's empty religion, idolatry, sorcery. Um, that's a biggie in, in the United States today. You'll hear more about that in the lectures. Uh, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which you have, I forewarn you, you just as I have forewarned you, that, you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then if you'd like to see, uh, keep your, uh, read another passage later, which has a little uh, further list. Do not be deceived. Uh, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. You know what that is. Those are people who have sexual relationships before they are married or outside of a marriage bond, that they are outside of a marriage bond. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, those who have sexual relations with people when they are inside a marriage bond, but they have them with someone other than their wife or the husband. Nor the effeminate. Um, that um, word literally means effeminate by perversion. That is... Uh, um, uh, let me give you an example. Transvestite, uh, uh, cross you know, the things that we laugh about these days, uh, but that are really a problem for some people, very much a problem for some people. Uh, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, drunkards nor revilers, uh, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you say, Hunter, I'll tell you what, I'm not doing any of those things. So I'm Okay. <clears throat> good. But just in case there are some other things in your life that weren't listed here, because this is just a partial list, let me talk to you about the things that don't even let us get advanced enough to get into spiritual warfare. The things that Satan gets to just to watch and see take over our lives and why they can take over our lives. I'm not going to talk about the things, I'm going to talk about the process. Because, again, the reminder is that Satan's first preference is to avoid spiritual warfare at all and to to avoid all conflict by relying on our natural inclinations. 
Okay. First of all, one of his tricks is just to set and watch, number one, us avoid self-examination. He doesn't have to interfere in this because it is our natural course not to examine ourselves spiritually, to not want to get to the things that could be wrong in our lives. I had an elder come to me this week, and he didn't want to come to me, but he came to me because he loved me. He came in, he called another pastor in. He said, Hunter, I think something's out of balance in your life, and I want to reprove you about it. Now, this is why, by the way, I came down here, to get under some godly men that would watch me, and if I started getting off track, would tell me about it. So he, he, he sensed this in his prayer life. And he called another pastor in because the, the other pastors worked closely with me. And if he was off base, he wanted to know about it. So he said, I think that God has shown me there's something in my spirit that wasn't quite right. And I think this is an area of your life that is out of balance. And I rebuke you. Well, as soon as he said that, I knew he was right. He was absolutely, totally right. And I hadn't even known about it. I didn't even discover it. I was not aware of it. I'd been avoiding it. Well, my response was, I repent. You know, I mean, that's the only response you can have. When somebody nails you like that, you repent. And I not only repented in response, I put it on my schedule to repent. I did something practical about it. But that was not a spiritual battle for me happening because I was not aware of it. But yet there was spiritual destruction happening in my life because I had not taken time to be aware of it, whether I was intentional or unintentional. Many times we cry out in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. That was the other song Christy sang. Create in me a clean heart, O God. But we don't know what we're asking Him to remove. If you read Psalm 51, turn to Psalm 51 for a second. Let me show you the prerequisite of crying out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. The prerequisite for crying that out is in verse 3. Where the man has examined his heart, he's listened to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he's recognized his own transgression. For I know my transgressions, he says, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. In other words, God, it's not your fault, it's my fault. It's my fault. That leads me to the second um, self-destructive tendency, the thing that keeps us on the road to hell. The second one is not only do we not examine our lives, not only do we intentionally or unintentionally avoid that examination, excuse me, but if we find out a sin, we may admit the sin and never admit the fault. Now listen to me. We may admit the sin and never admit the fault because we name circumstances. Well, that's just how my life's gone. And if you were me, you would have done the same thing. And so therefore, even though I'm guilty, I'm not really guilty. I heard a story about a a man coming before a judge. Now you, some of you have been in prisons, I know. Uh, I have been in prisons and tried to form relationships with, uh, with folks in prisons, have a prison ministry. It's a wonderful ministry, and I, I've really enjoyed it. But I have not met one convict who did not have some excuse for what he did. Almost all of them will admit what they did, but they are always followed with excuses. 
so that they are confessing the sin but not confessing the fault. Well, I heard a story about a guy who came before a judge. And, and, and the judge said, says, here, you did such and such. He said, that's right, I did. I'm guilty. Well, the judge was kind of taken back, and he said, well, what do you think I ought to do with you? He said, whatever the law says, you do with me, because it was my fault, I did it, I deserve whatever you want to do to me. The judge, knowing that particular attitude in prison, said to him, well, I can't send you to prison, because you're guilty, and our prison seemed to be full of innocent people. And I don't want you polluting them, and therefore I'm going to have to keep you out of prison. You know what? Our admission of not only our sin but our fault provides for us the same freedom. It's a paradox. When we admit, yes, it was me, it was not him. It was not Satan. It was not God. It was me. We're free. But when we won't admit it, we can claim our innocence to high heaven. We're still in prison. It still is on us. It still is with us. That's the way it works spiritually. Third thing. I believe that Satan really doesn't have to do much with us in a certain stage because some of us have listened to our own justifications for so long we actually have convinced ourselves that we are innocent. We won't even admit it was a sin. We don't even we don't even believe that those who accuse us have even anything to accuse us about. And when the Holy Spirit comes to us and we start to feel cornered, I mean this is a natural thing. Whenever you're caught dead, I mean when you're nailed, what's the first reaction? Oh no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I mean you don't even think true or false. You think defense. Becky teaches junior high school, and she can nail a kid in the act of doing something. And say, so-and-so, you're doing such and I mean, see him doing it. And she'll come home and say, Hunter, it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in your life. They'll start to defend themselves. And they will talk themselves out of the fact of believing they even did it. They really believe themselves. And I think, I'm convinced, if you put them through a lie detector test, they pass. <laughs> they pass. Because they're convinced they're not at fault. Has that ever... I do that same thing. I protest so much, I begin to believe myself. It's not really me, see? not really my fault. I really didn't mean it. And I begin to, I start to believe. Listen, when I was in junior high school, I wanted to try smoking out. I didn't want to try, just to see what it was like. Because I'd go to the pool hall and I'd see all these big Harley Davidson motorcycle guys smoking. I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought it was the cigarettes. It was really the motorcycles that I admired. But... But I said, so I got a buddy of mine, Danny. I said, Danny, I'll tell you what, because my parents smoked, and Danny's dad smoked. And so I said, let's just steal a few cigarettes and go over tonight to the tennis court and smoke. So Danny said, yeah, let's do that. So I went in and got and stole some of my mother's Kent cigarettes. Remember Kent's? My dad smoked camels. They weren't ready for that. <clears throat> Wanted a filter. You know, I knew better than that. And Stan, Danny, Danny stole some Marlboros or whatever they were. Anyhow, we went over there to the tennis court and we just lit them up and we tried to smoke and just got sicker than dogs. Never, never would admit it. You know, how you feel? I'm feeling fine. <clears throat> you like this? Yeah, I like it. You like it? Yeah, I like it. This is great. 
staggered back to Danny's house. You know how you get. Your body's trying to tell you something. You're not listening. Went in, sat down in his TV room. Was, we're trying to keep from throwing up. Watching the TV set, and Danny's mom walks in the room. Now, Danny's mom was a little Italian gal, about as broad as she was tall, had a little bun on top of her head, you know, always wore an apron, always smelled like salad dressing. <laughs> she walks in the room, and she did this. She turned to Danny, she said, Danny, you've been smoking, haven't you? Danny's eyes, never seen anything like this in my You should have seen this. This wide open. And he wasn't shocked he was caught. He was shocked she would accuse him of such a thing. Oh, it was marvelous. It was marvelous to behold. He said, I can't believe you think I smoke. I can't. Your own son. I'm sitting there watching TV. You come in and you accuse me of smoking. And then this is wonderful. He got up and he started going back and forth and delivering this wonderful soliloquy. Oh, all of the crime that goes on in this neighborhood, all of the things I've been tempted to do, all of the things I've never done. All my friends lie. I don't lie. All my friends steal. I don't steal. All my, my, I've been offered drugs I've never taken. And my own mother would accuse me of smoking. Now at this stage, I'm thinking... Maybe I was the only one that was smoking over there. I mean, this guy's brilliant. It's the finest thing you've ever seen in your life. He he stormed out of that room. And I am convinced, I know Danny well enough, I am convinced when he walked out of that room, he was convinced he hadn't smoked. His mother turned to me and said, Y'all been smoking, haven't you? She wasn't buying it. She wasn't buying it. But do you see the dynamic? The dynamic is, if we get defensive enough, we can actually convince ourselves that we haven't done it. What does Satan have to do? Not a thing. Not a thing. We'll stay on that road. We'll just stay on it. Fourth, it is important to note that Satan doesn't have to do much. Now we're getting into a little bit of the area of spiritual warfare. Satan doesn't have to do much if you and I will convince ourselves this is all a matter of perspective. You know what? Yeah, you have a couple of areas in your life that you're not doing too good in. And gee, I have a couple of areas in my life I'm not doing too good in. And we're only what? Human. Exactly. We are only human. Now, in Romans 8.29, what does the Bible say the object of our life is? To be conformed to the image of what? Christ. It's not to remain human. I mean, we will always be human. But you take that into account. But you don't remain there and you don't use it as an excuse. Well, if we can convince ourselves, you know, let's not get overboard about this stuff. It's just a little thing. It's just a little thing. Now, let me show you something in Scripture. In Romans 6, if you'll turn to Romans 6 with me. There's a principle you need to keep in mind, and it is this, it is this principle. Any area that you do not intentionally... I mean that you... Yeah, 
will not intentionally give to God is legally Satan's. Because there's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There's not a kingdom of earth. (laughs) And so therefore, Satan has access to anything you would withhold from God. Look at what it says. Uh, Look at the language. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. When we are sinning, we are slaves to sin. Now read down a little bit further in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin, what? Reign in your members of your body. We have this idea that God's up here and Satan's down here and we can remain neutral. We can go to God when we want to, or if you're really bad, you can go to Satan. See? But we have this illusion that if we don't really mess with either one of them very much, we will be neutral in the middle. There is... Neutrality is an illusion. If we are not specifically going to God, sin is reigning in our mortal bodies. That, it says, you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Have any of you ever said, look, here's a member of my body, I present it to you, sin. Have you ever done that? Come on, sin. I'm just pre- Here, take me. Do something with me. I present. You've never done that, have you? No, you just said, well, I'll just, do, I'll just go do this. You didn't present it to anybody, but yes, you did. When you don't present it to God, you present it to sin as, now look at this word. The word is translated instruments. It is also translatable Weapons. You talk about spiritual warfare here? Members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness. That is, Satan can use those to further his kingdom. You think this is a private deal. This isn't a private deal. Satan, is not only is he ruining your life, he's ruining your testimony. Even when you think it's secret, he is ruining your testimony. And so therefore, it says, don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Powerful stuff. You understand the dynamic that's happening there. And so therefore, if we say to ourselves, well, just this one little thing, see... Just this one little thing. I'll just keep that back from God and just keep it for myself. You don't keep anything for yourself. You keep it for God or you keep it for Satan. God has access to you through it or Satan has access to you through it. Let me tell you a story. True story. There was a man in Bolivia, poor farmer, who loved his family. He had a huge family. He had like ten kids. Loved his family. Good family man. Good man. Wanted more than anything to build them a house. And so for years, he scraped and saved, and he scavenged off the land uh, parts that could be used for that house, wood and nails and so on and so forth, parts that could be used for that house. And the day came that he could finally build that house for his family, and, and his kids helped, and it was a family project, and they just had a ball together and built this simple house. It wasn't much, but it was a simple, nice house. Two rooms, two windows, one door. Nice house. Well, doorway. Didn't have a door. Doorway. Along came a man, said one day, 
I like your house. I'd like to buy it from you. The man said, I don't want to, I don't want to sell it. My family built this house. I built this house for my family. Our lives are invested in this house. He said, now you understand, I can pay you a lot for this house. I'll give you, I'll give you $200 more than it's worth. And the man said, I don't care. Don't want to sell it. It's my family's house. This is our home. I'm not selling it. The man offered him 50% more than it was worth. Wouldn't sell. Offered him twice as much as it was worth. Wouldn't sell. The man looked at him and said, I want you to know, I get what I want. And he walked away. The next day he came back, very friendly. He said, let's talk about me buying your house again. The man said, you don't understand. I don't want to sell my house. He said, I will give you three times what you want. Not selling. Four times what it's worth. Not selling. The man said, okay, I'm convinced. You don't want to sell your house. That's, that's okay. I understand. He looked at a nail that wasn't quite driven in all the way over the doorpost, over the doorway. And he said, I tell you what, I'd like to buy just that nail. The man said, what do you mean you want to buy a nail? He said, I just want to buy that nail. He said, you can buy a nail anywhere. I want to buy that nail. Well, I guess I'd be, I mean, i got a whole house. I guess I can sell you the nail. I mean, he said, I'll, I'll pay, and I can't remember what it was, but it was like $200 for that nail. You're going to pay me $200 for a nail? Yeah. Okay, that's a good deal. Do you want me just to take it out and give it to you? No, just keep it right where it is. Paid him the $200. Now he owned the nail. Man came back the next day with the carcass of a dead animal. And he hung that dead animal on that nail. And in the succeeding days, that dead animal began to rot and stink. And every day, the members of that household would go, have to go through that dead animal to get into their house. Not only that, but the whole house filled with the aroma of a rotten, stinking carcass. And after that dead animal had rotted so much it became dry, he came and brought another dead animal. And the man knew that he was beaten. And he came back to the man and he said, Okay, I understand what you're doing. You have the right. I sold you the nail. I'll sell you the house. The man looked at him and said, Okay, I'll buy your house now for $150. He said, $150? The man said, Oh, now it's $100. $100? Now it's $75. He said, Okay, okay, I'll sell it. You understand the principle? If you think that Satan only has a small part of your life, I want you to know it doesn't take much for him to nail you with that any time he wants. Because he's got his interest, he's got his entrance, he's got his legal right to that part of your life, and all of us can be brought down by one thing. It may seem little, but it's a dangerous thing. Now, what's the answer? What's the answer to get to the next stage of spiritual warfare? It's as simple as it can be. It was, according to Mark, it was the first, the first words that came out of the mouth, uh, mouth of Jesus. 
And the word was, repent. Repent and believe. You know, we're talking about roads. A road is simply a direction that you're walking. And repentance is simply a change in direction. That's all it is. It's saying, I'm going this direction. Nope, don't want to go that direction. I'm going this direction now. That's what repentance is. It's just that simple. But here's the complication. It is the most difficult thing in the world to do. You know why? Because most of you are struggling right now with things that you have tried to let go for years and years and years and still have not done it. You know what? You never know the power of sin until you try to quit. People are not aware of the control sin has over their life. You know, I told you I tried smoking. I ended up smoking when I was in college for seven years. Hated myself the whole time for it. But thought that I could quit at any time. And I never realized the hold it held on me till I tried. That's an analogy to all sin. You never realize how much you're trapped until you try to get out. And all of these voices come to you that you think are yours. All of these excuses. Well, I don't want to hurt people's feelings or I don't want to embarrass anybody else or I don't want to be holier than thou or I don't want to do this or I don't... These are all the reasons I, I can quit. I, can, I, can, I, can not, I should not quit, you know? But yet you hate yourself for it. You know you ought to get out. I want to tell you this morning, straight out, if you think you ought to quit, you ought to quit. If the Holy Spirit's come to you and said this is wrong... You quit. Because if you don't, you're going to end up where you never thought you'd be. Do you remember? I'll tell one more story and then I'll quit. Do you remember the, uh, the uh, wide world of sports uh, entry scene every week with the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat? You remember that? Do you remember the scene... In that agony of defeat, the skier coming down and crashing through the barriers on that uh, ski jump and coming over and falling head over heels into the crowd. It looked like a horrible thing. You may not know the rest of the story to that. The rest of the story is he did that intentionally. Do you know why? Because that day, that jump had become so fast that people were beginning to jump beyond the regular level of safe landing. And on his final jump that day, he realized on the way down that ramp that if he completed that jump, he would go so far that it could be fatal. And so even though the repentance, the change of directions hurt, it did not hurt as much as if he had completed the jump. I know it's going to hurt. I know it is. He only ended up with a headache that day. You know that? Nothing was broken. But whatever it cost, whether broken bones, it was not worth his life. I don't know what you're dealing with. But whatever it is, it's not worth your life. It's not worth it. It's not worth destruction of who you are in Christ. It's 
not worth it. Let me give us all an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to deal with us right now and just spend a few moments in prayer, a few minutes in prayer. And I would like to open up the altar this morning so that you can just come down and you can speak to God in what He is saying to your heart. He may want to point out one or two or three areas in your life or whatever that He really wants to have. And I want you to pray and I want you to say, God, point, no matter what it feels like, point to the areas that I need to give to you that I have not given to you yet. And then, if you would, now you can, of course, pray where you are. You can always do that. But there's something about physically coming down and kneeling and then getting up and changing directions that really cements that repentance in your heart. And if you come down or wherever you are, this is what I want you to do because it is also very helpful. I want you to speak that area in your life. Just whisper it to yourself. God will hear you, but I need you to hear yourself. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And many times, just the area spoken really can set us free, can, can be, help us to begin the walk that we know we need to, to walk. Okay? Let's all pray and come to Him in all honesty, no matter what it, no matter what it, what it feels like.